Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to episode 4-422 of the Run Run Live podcast. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy New Year. I hope you're having a great holiday season, If you know, if that's part of your story. Today we talk with Robert Moore, Bob Moore, who is a guy who raced back in the 70s and he came in 5th and 7th and 7th again at the Boston Marathon back when it was an entirely different thing, an entirely different universe of running. And I got him to describe that to us, which is, it's kind of cool. And with folks like Bob, you know, a lot of times I'll just ask him a couple of open-ended questions and let him go. And I think that's something we can practice during these holidays when you might be speaking with people you haven't seen for a while. You have to remember how much joy that people get from telling their stories and practice active listening, right? It's a gift for them and and for you as well. So in section one, I'm going to counsel you on how to cheap out on your winter running gear because anyone who has run with me knows how cheap I am. In section two, I'm going to talk about how to turn worry about a big event or deadline into a positive force. Good article there. My Running has been going well. I got to tell you, I'm still in hibernation mode, but I feel good. I'm a little heavy, you know. I, I'm I'm executing just like I planned. Get a little relaxed during these couple of weeks leading into the new year and then uh, spin it up after that, start training again. So I get out for a mile or so walk first thing in the morning with Ollie as part of my morning routine. And I find that that's super helpful for him and starts the day well for me as well. And I'm still running four days a week. Tuesday and Thursday, I go out for like eight or nine road miles in a zone two effort. And I've got a nice, mostly back road loop that I can run at night without getting run over. And I find it quite comforting, quite peaceful. Then on Friday, I try to get out during the day with Ollie while the sun's still up, which isn't much this time of year. We just passed the solstice. So Ollie and I go out in the trails for another 10K or so. And the trails are frozen, and you can't go too fast. But again, it's good for him, and it's good for me to get out in the woods and soak up a little nature. And we mix it up. Mostly I run him off-leash, 
even though he hasn't got trained yet, he's very jumpy and exuberant with people. He won't attack or be mean, not with other people, other dogs, but he can be overwhelmingly friendly. And I've got a 50-50 chance right now of getting him to come when called to get back on the leash. So I have to be careful. I also run him on leash, and he's pretty good with that. Once he tires out a little bit and stops trying to pull me like it's the Iditarod, sometimes I'll drop the leash and let it drag. And I remember with Buddy, my last dog, he figured out how to run with the leash dragging between his legs and not step on it. It was actually quite a wonderful thing of physics he figured out. But Ollie hasn't figured that out. When I drop the leash... It makes him mad, so he picks it up in his mouth, and he runs with it. He, he runs carrying his own leash, and it's super cute. Super cute. All he's a cutie pie. And he's growing like a weed. I found a new trainer. I'm going to do some focus work over the next couple of weeks before I start my new job. I have a couple of weeks off. So I'll tell you a story from Christmas. My wife bought a bunch of stuff from Sears. Because she had a gift card from Sears that she had to use up before they go out of business. And it all showed up at the house in packages and boxes. And I was wrapping presents for Christmas and I said, hey, I'll wrap your stuff for you as well. And of course she said yes. And even had me wrapping my own presents, which is kind of interesting. And since now I was in charge, I wrapped and labeled the gifts appropriately with the recipient's name on them but for my own gifts that she had bought for me and now was having me wrap for her, I didn't put my name on those. I labeled them sexy. So on Christmas morning, when my kids were sorting through the gifts, they had to ask, who's sexy? To which I replied, I am. And there you have it. You are responsible for your own narrative. When someone gives you a chance to tell your own story, make it a good story on with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Winter running for cheapskates. Tips from a thrifty Yankee. Every year you open up your favorite running magazine and see the best winter gear reviews. They've got high-tech hats and gloves and jackets for you. It's all great stuff. I even see podcasters jumping on the bandwagon and being sponsored by clothing companies for these annual spreads of sartorial winter splendor. All this gear is good at keeping you warm and dry and comfortable so that you can be all you can be and live up to your winter running potential. But you know what all that gear is really good at? Emptying your bank account. Yeah, let me be the Grinch here and give you some alternative strategies. From a guy who's been running through New England winters since before they invented technical fabrics. So let's begin with some definitions. I'm going to speak in Fahrenheit because, well, you know, America. You can do the conversions. Of course, cold is relative. I have friends who run in shorts, no matter how cold it gets. If you go to a race up here in New England, there will be some dude in high-cut shorts and a singlet. Guaranteed. It doesn't matter. If it's 12 below, that dude has a different thermostat. It's all relative. You folks in Florida may hide inside on the treadmill if it gets below 60. For me, there's cold, 
and then there's really cold. I don't consider it cold unless it falls below 40. And I tend to chunk it up into three temperature bands of cold that I scheme clothes for. Mildly cold is anything above freezing, so in the 30 to 40 range. And unless there's a howling wind or freezing rain, that's shorts weather. Nothing to get any special gear on for. Cold is when it gets below freezing, the 20 to 30, the teens to 30 range. And this is where I'll start wearing pants. Really cold is single digits and below. That's where I need the cold weather running kit, all that stuff. The key to running in the cold is to keep your core warm. If you can keep your core warm, you can still function. You'll stay alive. As it starts to fall into the really cold category, you need to also worry about your extremities. Fingers, toes, ears, noses, you know, all the pointy bits. So let's start at the top. One of the best ways to keep your core warm is to keep your head warm. And you don't need anything expensive or technical. All you need is a good fuzzy winter hat. Any run-of-the-mill, off-the-shelf winter hat will do. All these hats are made with synthetics, and most will wick moisture. You don't need anything special. And the best way to get these hats is to have one of the little old ladies in your life knit them for you. Yeah. Okay, the second best way is to live next to a ski area and pick them up by the side of the road as they fall off the roofs of cars. Okay, the third best way is to go to any Goodwill or swap shop or flea market. You should probably wash them a couple times because you don't want to get head crabs, but if you're paying more than 10 bucks for a hat, you're getting hosed. And if you get them too big, they'll fall down over your eyes. And when they get wet, they freeze and blocks of ice form. It can be annoying to run with a block of sweat ice smacking you in the eyebrows, but the way to fix this is to wear a normal baseball-style running hat under the oversized fuzzy hat. And that will give you the benefit of the oversized fuzzy hat and keep the ice out of your eyes. So moving down to the neck area, you can also get a cheap balaclava in the same way that you got that hat. And those are great for really, really, really cold weather. But failing that, you can acquire a cheap winter scarf in any of the above ways, and make it into your neck warmer. It makes a great neck protector and an even better fashion statement. You'll keep your neck warm, and you'll look like a World War I flying ace out there. It's perfect. And last but not least, before you open your wallet, you can also cannibalize an oversized technical shirt or hat to make a neck gaiter. Just cut the top off of that hat, and now it's a gaiter. There you go. Gators and scarves are useful for when the air gets too cold to breathe. Yeah, I run when the air gets too cold to breathe. You just put that scarf or that gator over your mouth, and you can breathe through it. Now, the winter running jacket is where people miss a stupendous opportunity to go cheap. You can grab an off-the-shelf fleece hoodie for nickels, and they wick like a champ. Now, these are always getting thrown away by people because companies hand them out as promotional items and such. Technical Fleece breathes and wicks just like your $300 race jacket. If you can find one with a good hood and a zipper, 
It also works to regulate the breathing surface so you don't overheat. The other key item I love for the cold, but not really cold, those in-between colds, is a nice work vest. You can find these, well, because who wears a vest? Nobody. They get them as gifts, and they chuck them at the first opportunity. I have a Dickies work vest that I got from a company I work for, and it is bulletproof. It blocks the wind and has lots of pockets, keeps the core warm, and conveniently carries stuff. What more can you ask for? So other than that, on your core, it's all about the layering. If you've run a winter race, you have a long sleeve tech shirt or two. Use those old race shirts as your base layers. They wick and they will keep your core warm. Eventually, they will smell so bad that your best friends will shun you. But until then, they'll keep you warm. I would recommend a good pair of winter tights or running pants. I mean, you can run an old sweatpants, but from experience, that's not a good user experience. I would also recommend some technical undies because there are just some things that should not be allowed to get frostbite. You don't have to break the bank, but get something functional. Now for gloves, same thing for gloves as hats. Believe it or not, the gloves don't know that they're not running gloves. No kidding. Any warm mittens or gloves that you pick up will be fine to run in, just like the hats. You can get them basically for free. I have a pair of thick wool mittens that I use for snow blowing and when it gets really, really cold. Plus, with a big pair of mittens, you can slide hand warmers in or keep your cell phone in there to keep it from freezing to death. Because, hey, who really wants to be out on a sub-zero trail run without a medieval history podcast? Do you need special shoes to run in the snow and ice? Do you need special spikes and crampons and screws? No. You can run in the snow and ice in your normal shoes. Just run carefully. Maintain your balance. Have good form. Flatten out on that foot plant when you hit the icy bits and you'll be fine. When conditions get kind of weird, I'll switch to trail shoes because they tend to have better grip and a softer outsole. When it gets really cold, the foam in your shoes will freeze and get rock hard. So if you have a softer pair of shoes, they may be more comfortable. Do you need special socks to keep your toes warm? No, not really. I mean, if your toes are getting cold, what you can do is cover the toes of your shoes with a couple of strips of duct tape, and that'll keep the wind out. All right, you got it? So let's review. If you were to add up the price tags in that gear review article, you'd be forking over a couple thousand bucks for the privilege of going outside for two, three months a year. If you find that comforting or empowering, then go ahead, do it. If not, then you can still get outside. Enjoy the crisp, cold silence of a winter run for less than a hundred bucks. Gear doesn't make you a better runner. Your heart makes you a better runner. Remember rule number six. Throw on that thermal underwear from your granddad's bottom drawer and get your ass out there. And now for today's featured interview. So 
Bob, I, I'm very excited to talk to you because uh, you have deep personal knowledge about things that I am fascinated and passionate about, like the running scene around marathons in the 1970s and earlier. So why don't you give me the 200 words on who you are and, and what you've done? Yeah, my name is Robert Moore. I was originally born in central England. I got into running by accident at age 19. I was at university and they offered me a free meal if I was an official. So I was an official for a while and then I got drafted into the slowest and worst team at the university. They had five teams of eight during cross country. So I started out in the slowest and worst team. And eventually, in a year or two, I became the best they had. And we were also national champions two years in a row. And uh, I was the kind of guy who raced often. I didn't like training, so I raced a lot. And um, I got into marathon running just by accident. And uh, I trained with a guy who was training for a marathon. So he said, well, you can handle it. Why don't you run it? And that was my first marathon in 1965. And it was 2.36, 2 hours, 36 minutes. And yeah. the field in those days was about 60 runners. So I ran maybe five marathons in England. And then I came to Canada to work. And um, when I came to Canada, I ran all distances from the mile and upwards. And uh, the coach noticed me limping. So he sent me to an expert in the city. And he said, I was totally finished as a runner. Yeah. And I said, well, I like to jog. And he said, never, ever, ever, ever run a marathon because you'll just wreck you. So yeah. for a year, I didn't. And then I applied to run Boston and they rejected my entry because they said you haven't run a marathon for two years. Yeah. So what I did was I ran a time trial, 30 kilometer time trial, and I had a letter saying that I was fit to run a marathon. So I turned up at Boston and they gave me the highest number in the field. And That's so when awesome. I went so, to the start line, they threw me off the bouncers. So and what, I said, uh, what year, what year that was, was 1969. 69. Okay. Yeah. So... The bouncers threw me off. I said, who's in charge? And he said, Jock Semple over there. So I went to Jock Semple and I made my case. And he came back with me and said, let him start in the top 100. So I was allowed to start in the top 100. And at the halfway stage, um, there was a, a Japanese and two Mexicans had run away from the field. And I was with the second pack and running yeah. in fourth position. And uh, I held forth to Fenway Park. And then an American called Ron Dawes beat me on the last mile. Rondos refused to give interviews, so I was the first English-speaking person in the field to give interviews. That was my first Boston. I was fifth. Wow. So you just showed up in 1969, and you finished fifth. Yeah. So what was the race like then? When you show up in Hockington, give us, just paint us a picture well, of what the scene in Hockington was just an ordinary like. city street. There was, um, the washrooms were in a local school, and of course, a big line for that. There wasn't much traffic. I don't remember there being any cones. Of course, there was no water stations. You just ran the straight thing. Uh, yeah. There was a pretty enthusiastic crowd, especially early on. But towards the middle of the race, not much. Not many spectators. And um, it wasn't as bad as advertised. There were hills, but compared with where I, I was raised, the hills were nothing. Yeah. So Heartbreak Hill wasn't. And right. uh, Fenway Park, the baseball game finished, and they crowded across the road. There was no control, and you were running through the crowd. Yeah, and there so no, uh, there were no barriers or anything. People there was just no barriers. Were wandering around the no court. No barriers. Yeah. I, they didn't impede me, but I was a bit scared. I tell you, you come down the hill <laughs> to Fenway Park, and then it's wall to wall people. The street yeah. is just packed. 
And as you get yeah. close to them, uh, a lane opens up. And so you yep. can run through them, but you could touch people on either side if you wanted. It was so yeah. close. Yeah. And then when you got through Fenway Park, alongside the river, uh, there was hardly anybody. <laughs> it's quite funny. Uh, after that crowd. And then there was a strong right, right turn, and you went up the hill to the finish. Right. And then yeah, I think it was in a plaza. different place then. Yeah. Hancock Plaza, is it? The insurance, Hancock, I think it is. Hancock Tower, yeah. 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 So... So that yeah. was the, the first one, and it got me uh, in a couple of international marathons to follow, and that was fun. And then I invited myself to Japan for the Fukuoka Marathon. Right, which was a very big deal back then. There was, it was. It was like was... the unofficial world championship. And at the right. time, I'd run 218 in another marathon, not Boston. And I wrote to them and, and said, I'd like to run in your race. And they said, frankly, you're not good enough. But if you pay your way to Tokyo, we'll pay the rest. So I agreed to that. And when I told the club, the club coach says, well, if they ask you, they can ask Drayton. So he yeah, got into Japan. This is, this is, this is drunk, this is 69. Drayton. Yeah. So what happened was Drayton and I were not invited, but we invited ourselves. And we paid a fair amount of it ourselves. And we got to Fukuoka. And early on in the race, Drayton broke away from the pack. And Ron Hill turned to me and said, who the hell is he? Because Ron Hill and I go way back. And I said, he's pretty good. Don't let him go or he'll beat you. And he said, nah, what's he done? And I said, 212 in Detroit. Oh, he said, short course? And I said, no, it's not short course. It's a flat course. And he said, nah, I'll let him go. I'll pull him back on the way back. Anyway, he didn't. <laughs> Drayton won the Fukuoka Marathon with Ron Hill was second. I was 10th in 216. But anyway, afterwards, Ron Hill said, I don't like this. I don't like this Drayton guy. The Commonwealth Games is coming up. I want to have a go at the world record for the marathon. And I don't want people yapping at my heels. I've got to run him into the ground. Uh, when's his next marathon? And I said, well, he doesn't race very often, but he has to run Boston in 1970. That's our time trial for the Commonwealth yeah. Games marathon. And he said, right, I'm going to enter Boston. Yeah. Tell me about yeah. Boston. So I told him about Boston. He said, okay, I'll be there. And in 1970, Ron Hill won Boston. I was yep. seven. Drayton dropped out. Yeah, yeah. Now, later on in the it, year, it was, he ran. Was, did, was that the one where he had the Union Jack shorts? He was oh, wearing? yeah, yeah. He, that, he was that, I remember that he, picture, yeah. He's got a PhD in textile technology yeah. and uh, a researcher, so he knows fabrics and he knows cuts. And he was a pioneer in a lot of things that we take for granted now, like a stretch, yeah. that kind of thing. Uh, bright colors, reflective yeah. colors. Like the New Zealand used to run in black. Well, now they don't, they run in white because black absorbs the heat, you know, that kind of stuff, basic. Right. So I got Ron Hill in, and then the other story about uh, the Boston was in 1974. I ran in 73 under bad weather conditions, so seventh again. And then in 74, I ran, and I wasn't full of confidence, but about 10 kilometers, there was a group of us. And I looked around, and to my great surprise, I was running alongside Drayton. And I thought, this is unusual. He's way better than me in training and racing. He should be way ahead. But anyway, you never know your luck. I'll keep going. So from about 10 kilometers to even 35 kilometers, we were side by side. And we never spoke a word. And... Every time we ran up a hill, he pulled away from me a little bit. And every time we ran down a hill, I pulled it back. And so people thought we were running as a team, but we were not. <laughs> Eventually finished um, fifth in about 2.15, I think. And I was seventh in 2.16.45. That's my fastest Boston. Yeah. So who, who won that year? Cusack. Neil Cusack. Okay. Yeah. From Ireland. And he ran, oh, I don't know. Probably uh, 2.09 or something, something like that. that. Yeah. 
So that it, was... it was good, but um, I think 1750 finished that race in 1974, so they weren't big fields. Right. And it's a huge production now. Oh, but, yeah, it's uh, totally, totally different, totally different now. And if it's you a look different at, atmosphere altogether, yeah. Yeah, and if you look, and Boston didn't give any prizes. There was no money involved. No, and you but guys there was were some all... nice trophies, and I've got them. I'm looking at some now. And oh, it was standard. It, it was winged angels and a guy uh, with it, going to the finish line with his arms up. Um, yeah. It deserved its reputation. If you look at the way it was when I ran them, and you think, oh, primitive. But uh, it had prestige, and people did come. I, I mean, one year, the first time I ran, it was won by a Japanese, and then the Finns often ran. And my club, the Toronto Olympic Club, regularly sent athletes uh, in the 60s to the Boston Marathon, and they, they placed in the top 10 quite frequently because it was the thing. That there was not much else going on. Right. There wasn't a marathon in every major city, right? There wasn't one in and Toronto. The guy- yeah, and the guys in Boston, they kind of knew what they were doing, the BAA. Yeah, so you yeah could... absolutely. They, they, they set the standard. I mean, it's a bit yeah. pathetic when you think about it. You look at what's going on today. I mean, one of the things I did in 1971 was with two other people, we got together and we actually ran a marathon, but it was just pure amateur. We were the first people to give prizes to women and the first people to give age group prizes. And at the time, I was over 30, so I ran as a 20-year-old because they said nobody's going to show up. Virtually nobody who was over 30 runs anymore. You happen to, and we want to encourage them to come out, and they won't because you're the guy who's going to win the medal. So I ran as a (laughs) 20-year-old. I'm good, but not great. I mean, Drayton was great. And what really got him into running was... um, we had a, a guy called Andy Boychuk in the club, who was also a Ukrainian. And Boychuk uh, was a Pan-American marathon champion in 66. And so Drayton had a friend in the club who spoke, uh, well, he's from the same culture. And uh, without Boychuk, I don't think uh, Drayton would have become the runner that he was because he wanted to get Boychuk's approval. You'll find Boychuk's name in the top 10 in the Boston quite frequently, by the way. Mm. So he, he never yeah. won it. But he was certainly my times. Uh, he was the man that I either finished just ahead of or just behind. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's funny things that drive us on. You were telling me before that Drayton has a very interesting sort of backstory. Yes, definitely difficult. Uh, it wasn't an extermination camp that was born. It was more of a gulag. And so the Germans, the Nazis... Them, yeah. Yeah. Got, uh, his mother was Ukrainian and his father was Russian. And he was conceived in 44, but born in 45. And uh, after the war was over, the Russians didn't want their people back. And if they did go back to Russia, they killed them. You know, they yeah. didn't want them contaminated. So he, like many others, and I've been in these camps, they were displaced persons camp. But what went bad for Drayton was two things. One is his father abandoned the family. And second, his mother got tuberculosis. So that when you have the countries um, applying to, uh, you want to apply to be an immigrant to Britain or United States or Canada, and you've got TB, that's a strike against you. So for 11 years, he lived in Germany. They called them the Untenmensch, the Ukrainians in Germany, because as I said, I've been there. I speak a little German. And um, 
they were uh, like poor blacks in the southern United States at the time. You couldn't get a job because you were a Ukrainian sort of thing. And they were living in rather poor conditions. And the Germans themselves were in trouble. So they could hardly help the DPs, the displaced persons. And what changed? And uh, he was in and out of foster homes or back in the camps. The camps were the original gulags, but with the watchtowers taken down and the barbed wire taken down. So they were still living in the same huts. Um, what changed was there was a, a national outcry in Europe saying, we've got to get rid of these camps. That They've been there for 10 years, 11 years. We've got to get rid of them. And Britain took in 15,000 and Canada took in 15,000. No questions. You're a yeah. human being. You want to come to Canada, you're in. And uh, yeah. so his mother became a lifelong worker with the Tuberculosis Society of Canada and did good work. I brought him a Drayton to Canada and of course he had to learn English, which he didn't have, and you're an 11 year old. So he was naturally set up as an outsider and um, he uh, showed some natural talent as a runner at school, but he never, he played other sports. And as I say, he got into distance running because of Boychuk. Yeah. It's different fuel for everybody, right? Some people do it because they love it. Some people do it because they have demons. I think all of us have some demons. Yeah. Uh, Boychuk, curiously uh, enough, dropped out and became an evangelical preacher in the United States somewhere. (laughs) The interesting thing is you guys were all, this was your, there was no professional runners per se. There was no money anywhere in this. You guys were all doing other stuff. And it wasn't yeah. like you were working at a shoe store. You guys were all professors and scientists and this kind of stuff. Yeah. And then, then going out on the weekends and running 216 marathons. That's an incredible culture. Yeah. What we like with trips, yeah. what I mean is that you get to a good standard runner and uh, then there's an invite to South America or to Japan or to Europe. And you went and you absorbed the culture and you came back. It was great. It was uh, an eye-opener. And uh, the runners themselves, there was a sort of world record, two hours, nine and a half, set in Antwerp. And the guy who set it was a, a really brash Australian who I didn't like at all, Derek Clayton. And he uh, became the accountant for Runner's World, by the way, in the United States later. Um, Clayton was there. And it was a who's who of marathon running at the time, apart from Drayton. Just the camaraderie, just the bunch of people who were all good marathon runners just sitting around uh, in a pub exchanging stories. It was just uh, a wonderful experience. I suppose it's the same for every profession. We were a kind of a profession, pure amateurs. Clayton, the Australian, said, not only can you not make money out of the sport, but you travel more than a month. So he was just cramming in marathons right, left and centre just to uh, use up his month. Trying yeah, to keep it that's amateur. The, that's kind of the difference, too. I mean, when you look at the way guys trained back then, they were coming from a track and field world, and they were doing a lot of hard speed work and a lot of high volume. Um, and that's yeah. why a lot of them didn't make it out of their 20s as runners. Yeah. Well, in Britain, we had a very good cross-country season. And I remember one of the guys at Antwerp uh, was a, a cross-country runner, a good one. And he occasionally ran 10,000 meters on the track, quite good. He he represented Britain at 10, but not world shattering. And then he decided at the end of his career he'd run a marathon. He did, and he qualified for the Tokyo Olympics. And we thought, well, well, he'll be back in the pack. He finished third. (laughs) Oh, well. Uh, Good, solid, hard 
running career, but not burning out. I think the United States, they race them too hard when they're young. In yeah. Britain, you race a lot, but it's a fairly low tension racing. It's not, uh, you've got to win at all costs. It's, well, well, I ran against, you know, Sebastian Coe, the miler. Sure. Yeah. Who's now IOC. I've raced against him cross country and he wasn't all that good. Yeah. And Herb Elliott, who held the world record for the mile, I've raced against him cross country and he wasn't all that good. But that's okay. You know, yeah. you've got to stay fit. Yeah. yeah. And it was the same with the marathon. Running, right? Yeah. I ran about five a year sometimes, three a year in a slow year. I ran a 52 after I was told never to run again. And I think my slowest marathon was my second marathon, 255. So what do you I run running. today? I stopped running marathons in when I was 55. And mm-hmm. I ran 240-odd. 245, something like that. And I thought, wow, well, I'm done. Let's yeah. get out of this. Too, too slow for you? Yeah. I consider myself like the guy in Tokyo, a cross-country runner. Yeah. And so the races like- that give me the most uh, enjoyment, cross-country, not road races or track races at all. I run steeplechase. Yeah. And I run indoors, Madison Square Gardens, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, they used to have the track meets there. They still do, actually, right? Every year they have one there. Yeah, it it was okay, but I was put in the devil take the hindmost race, and you had to drop out if you were at the back. And I lasted about six laps. (laughs) (laughs) And then I was thrown out. It's always been fun. I I raced in Bermuda, and um, I was third in the World Championship Marathon for old people in Japan one time, at Mount Fuji. And um, there's a a rival of mine in England, uh, when I was in England, called Roger Robinson, and he married Karen Switzer, who should be known oh, okay. to Boston people. Oh, and yeah. I believe he lives oh, in yeah. Vermont half the time and half the time in New Zealand. You know, Peter huh. Snell died recently, and yeah. Roger Robinson oh, wrote his obituary. Yeah. yeah. So Robinson's a journalist, a poet, a professor. Right. He's yeah. beaten me on the marathon. Yeah, I know Catherine's running it again now. She has a whole big charity that she's doing. Sure. Well, Roger may be with yeah. her. Yeah, he may be running with her. So um, what I'm seeing these days is a lot of older guys still getting out there, still doing stuff. And, yeah. you know, what are your thoughts on how to run your whole life? How do you well, do that right? I think how you do it right is work is balance. I think uh, and stay off drugs because <laughs> that will shorten your career. But uh, I think to have a balance and to have a sense of fun, we, in 1971, as, as I told you, we introduced it, age group running and this kind of was beginning to happen worldwide the first world masters championship was actually held in toronto it's going to be held again this year in toronto so that's every couple of years a different part of the world but they're not running marathons anymore because it's too expensive you know all the police and all the infrastructure that goes with a modern marathon just horrendous we kind of get killed with our own success Uh, What I would urge uh, people to do is to talk to politicians and develop marathon courses in cities, which could be used as bicycle routes during the week, where they're away from the traffic all the time. Uh, There's a place in England called Milton Keynes that's done this, and shutting down the traffic in Toronto always causes an uproar, even though it might be an international marathon. The marathon has got so big now that to be tolerated, it has to engage the community. Right. Toronto used to have two. They used to have one in the fall and one in the spring, right? Yeah, the one in the fall, well, they still do, but um, the one in the spring is a little bit chaotic. It's not the same level. It never aspires to be. 
And the one in the fall is um, tries to be A grade, a really good marathon. Right, that's the water marathon. Yeah. When I'm at Boston, I see a lot of guys from Ontario that have qualified at that marathon or one of those two marathons. Yeah, well, I wonder about these Nike shoes, whether this is a technical advantage. Because yeah, uh, we... nine men got under 220 at the Toronto Marathon this year. And I've been, if not running the marathon, I've been a marshal, uh, an organizer for that marathon. And to get nine men under 220, nothing like, I'd say two or three. Yeah. So something's happened. And I think it's yeah. the shoes. Yeah. It's, it's worth yeah. a few minutes. Yeah. Now, isn't no, it good? Uh, in the 90s, there was an American company that produced shoes with springs in the heels. And right. they were banned at Boston. Yeah. Well, they and they never anyhow. went anywhere. Right, it was mechanical. And now we have the Vaporfly, which is also possibly an unfair advantage, but uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, it's it certainly makes spring. runners That's faster. all it is. Yeah, it's yeah. just a spring, right? So it's storing the energy yeah, that's and then it. returning it's under it. the arch. Yeah. And it gives you yeah. a good return. You put your foot down and it, it, yeah, and it coils, and then you release and it springs back and gives you a little bit of extra push. Yeah, stores that energy for you. Well, that's yeah, good. it does. That's good. But uh, others will catch on. There's always going to be something, right? I mean, there's a story from history of the Boston Marathon. Uh, We had an indigenous guy called Tom Longbow to run Boston, and uh, he won it. But I think how he won it was a bit tricky because in those days, the race route crossed railway lines, or railway lines crossed the race route. And he looked and he saw a train approaching the crossing, so he sprinted like hell and got over the crossing before the train stopped the field. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, there's a long history of Canadian runners uh, went in the Boston Marathon at, um, long in the original race in the first hundred years. Sure, guy um, from Quebec yeah. who now has a park yeah. named after him in St. Yeah. And I think the first Boston Marathon, the top three were Canadians. They keep getting after it. So yeah. uh, congratulations on your uh, longevity and thanks for the stories here. Bob. Yeah, no, gonna, it's been a good ride. Yeah, it, everybody's so, different. It's uh, everyone's an experiment of one, is what I like to tell people. So, but it's yeah. interesting to see the curve over time. Um, yes, yeah. you know, it's uh, you got to look at it over a lifetime. So, yeah. All right. All right. I gotta go. So, so yeah, I'm good. Let you good. I hope the you line got something. Here, Bob, uh, but all okay. right. Have a great day and and try Thanks to keep warm up there. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Bye bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Worry. Creating an abundance mindset for key life events. Now, I was thinking more about that dream that I told you about in the last show, the one where apparently I materialized into a gang interview that I wasn't prepared for. Now, Freud might have gone deeper into mommy issues or something, but to me, it's clearly a worry dream. I get worry dreams when my life and work get out of balance, basically when I'm worried about something. My subconscious takes the challenge. It sees me worrying and tries to help by manifesting examples. Here's something to worry about. As much as I'd like to take my subconscious out to the woodshed for these non-helpful support activities, it's sending me a message. It's trying to be helpful in that dinosaur brain sort of way. The real issue, it reminds me, is not that you have things to worry about. The real issue is that you are worrying about them. Worry is a waste of energy. Worry is a waste of time. And as we know from our conversations around the power of now, 
it is quite useless and quite ridiculous to worry about something that might or might not happen in the future. It runs counter to what you're trying to accomplish. So let's say you have that big meeting or event coming up that has a lot riding on it. This creates tension because it is a deadline. It is a scheduled thing that is going to happen. It is a certainty. It is unavoidable. And most of us need a bit of emotional tension to drive us to action, to keep us engaged. This can be positive emotional tension, like the chance of a positive outcome or a potential win or a reward. Or it can be negative emotional tension, like get this done by tomorrow or find a new job. What creates our worry, this negative emotional tension, is the story we tell ourselves. In this case, we are telling ourselves a story about the looming deadline, our lack of preparedness, and the potential negative outcomes. This worry cannibalizes our time and energy in a way that almost ensures the very outcome that we are worried about. It's our negativity bias again. Basic human nature, evolutionary burn-in. Over the long haul, it's better to assume that there is a lion behind every bush. But think about your energy and your time as a gas tank. When it's full, you find out about that meeting, that event, that deadline. But it's full, but it's finite. You only have so much. You have a deadline and only so much time and energy to prepare or do the work. You have only so much time and energy to devote to that preparation. So how are you going to spend that gas, that finite amount of gas in the tank? Are you going to waste it on worry? Or are you going to use it to prepare the best you can and go into that meeting with energy? It doesn't make any sense, but we will waste much of the available time and energy worrying and bitching about the deadline. Instead, you can just get to it and get it done. Here again, we return to a familiar theme, the bias for action. Do something. Get to work. Turn your worry into progress. But let's go back to the story we tell. The worry comes from us telling a story about being unprepared, not knowing what to do, doing a bad job, and potentially failing. And this is also a familiar theme. Tell a different story. You get to make up your narrative. Do a better job with your narrative. You may think at this point I'm recommending that you make up some fictional story, an aspirational story about what could be or what should be. I'm not. Your positive outcome story is just as probable, just as real, if not more real, than the negative outcome story you're worrying about. Tell that story. It's a truthful story. The reason you have been selected or invited to this event or deadline is because someone believes you are worthy of it. Think about that. The mere existence of this thing you're worrying about is a vote of confidence in your ability to handle it. And guess what? They want you to succeed. So here's your new story. I am being asked to do this because someone has faith in me and sees my ability to be successful they want me to be successful. The cards, as they say, are stacked in your favor. So here's another element of your story. You don't have to go to this meeting. 
finish this report or give this presentation or whatever this deadline is you're worrying about. You chose to do it. You could walk away anytime. It's a choice. It's your choice. So what's your story? At this point, you have a deadline for this event that you are choosing to do, that everyone thinks you're qualified to do, and that everyone wants you to succeed at. So check your gas tank and get to work. Maybe you'll take a couple minutes to plan an approach. You may not be able to fully prepare, but you can 80-20 the opportunity and see what the most important bits are that you must get done to be successful and start with those. With a nod to the great Stephen Covey, whose name in my old age I can never remember, but whose wisdom taught my generation so much, start with the end in mind. What is the outcome you're looking for? What is the single most important thing you need to prepare to get that outcome? Be specific. Now, if it's an interview or a meeting with someone, I'll tell you right now that 80% of the outcome will be dependent on people. Your number one thing might be to research these people, their profiles, learn about them and their history. How do they fit into the organization? What is their personal win? How do you make them feel good about themselves and look smart in this meeting? Which, of course, is another one of our favorite themes. It's not about you, crazy as it sounds, even in an interview where the whole agenda is supposed to be about you. If you want it to be successful, you'll make it about them. And after you prepare for the people, the next thing you might look at is your communication. How are you going to tell your story? I don't care what the topic is, especially if it is an interview. The story form is the most natural and powerful way to communicate. You don't have to memorize the stories. Just remember the form. Each story starts with some sort of challenge. The hero takes the challenge, goes on a journey, learns something along the way from coaches, and there's a resolution or result. So all you have to do is remember a couple of good challenges from your life that fit the story form, and you can answer any question, especially those in the form of, tell me a time when you, or what's an example of. And it's even better if you can work them into the story somehow and make the listener be the hero. If you can craft, actually write down in story form three to five things you're proud of, You can use these stories universally in high-impact moments of truth situations to communicate powerfully in the moment. It'll blow people away. And after you get the people sorted and the communication, then you can think about the content. What are the actual proof points or arguments? In my experience, people get the emphasis wrong. They worry about the content first and then fail in their event because they don't connect with the people and don't communicate well. It doesn't matter what you know or how much you've studied if you can't connect and communicate. So let's review. You, you're a worrier. You worry about events because you are telling yourself the wrong story. You're wasting precious time and energy on the worry and then preparing for the wrong things. Now here's what you're going to do instead. You're going to stop worrying. You're going to tell a better story. A story about how you were rightly chosen for this because of your qualifications and your abilities. 
A story about how everyone involved wants you to succeed. A story about how you used your limited time and energy preparing for this event by understanding the audience and communicating in a way that moves them. The end of this story is you being very successful indeed because you know whatever happens, you can handle it and you've got nothing to worry about. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, you have made it with great gusto to the end of the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-222. 4422. This weekend, I am going to host the seventh edition of the Groton Marathon, which is a made-up series of races that I started after the Boston incident in 2013. My club and anyone else who shows up and runs, we can go whatever distance they want on the last Sunday of December in the morning. I'm going the full distance. I'm doing a marathon, and it looks like I'll have a half a dozen or so for company. So, yeah, we run our own made-up race the last Sunday in December. Looks like we're going to get good weather. I mean, I'm not in shape to run a marathon, but I can fake it. We'll just go slow, stop a lot, run four, four and a half hours, something like that. And at least I'm not sick this year, knock on wood. After that... I'm formulating my next season plans, and I don't even know if I'm running Boston or not this year. If I get in, I'll run for charity. I'll train hard enough to respect it, but I won't try to requalify. It's just too much on that day with that course and the time of year it is to to put that much effort into a race. It just doesn't pay off. It's not it's not a a good bet, but. I am going to look for a race somewhere in May, June, April to focus on uh, to requalify at because I think I can do it. I called my coach and I threw myself on his mercy and he's going to train me after the Groton Marathon. We'll get busy. And I did volunteer to pace a marathon in May out on Martha's Vineyard. And that sounds like fun. If it sounds like fun for you, sure, come on up, join me. Cape Cod in the summer. Well, not quite the summer, but close. I'm thinking maybe I'll do 100K later in the summer or something like that. That would be cool. I've never run 100K before, so bam, built-in PR. I'll tell you one more funny story from last week. Like I alluded to, I'm going to start a new job in January. And yes, this is where all this advice, like the advice in Section 2 came from. I wrote that as I was flying down to Dallas for an interview. So at one point, I'm in all these interviews, and at one point, this hiring manager asked me, so you have all this experience and all these skills, but what new thing are you learning right now? And I thought about this for a beat. The interview was going well, so I had a bit of goodwill I could risk here. And I answered, well, I'm currently learning how to run across the United States. And I swear that lady's head nearly exploded. And that was pretty funny. I haven't seen a comic double take and an audible wow in an interview before. That was that was something. But more to the point, as a learning moment, because you all know I'm a different kind of animal by now, what they were trying to get at is, am I still able to learn? Do I have a growth mindset? Do I have an attitude of abundance? 
And, you know, you not always, you don't always want to be the smartest guy in the room and think you know everything. Being the smartest guy in the room isn't necessarily a useful thing, especially if you can't learn. So don't forget to learn new things. Push your limits. No matter who you are or where you are in your story, you get to create that narrative. And to take you out today, I may append a piece of holiday music from Eric's wife, Tammy. They do a holiday CD every year. She's a pianist. I'll put a link to the whole CD if you're interested in the show notes. And going forward, we're going to start working in more music because life is much better with music. Consider it music therapy. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. Bye.